Hey, it's Jackie, and I don't know if you remember, but a while back, I did an episode on deconstructing faith, and my hope was just to normalize it, that we would see that people in the scriptures have done it. Um, But if you're from a certain sect of Christianity and you start to shift some of your beliefs, well, it's a slippery slope. We all know where that slope goes. So, Many of you have shared that, you know, you're on this journey and it's a bit scary and you're not sure if it's okay and you don't know what's next or around the corner. And so I wanted to share with you some wisdom from a man named Brian Zan. And he has been a pastor, the founder and pastor of Word of Life Church for 40 years. 40 years, same church. That's amazing. He's known for his theologically informed preaching and his embrace of the deep, long history of the church. He helps pastors engage with leading theologians, and he speaks around the world, and he's authored multiple books. Um, You're going to hear me mention one, Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God, but he's also wrote several others like A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, which I read a long time ago and is fabulous, and I've just recently ordered one of his other books, Water to Wine. But the book we're talking about today with him is called When Everything is on Fire, and I loved the book. His imagery, his picture of our building a theological palace for King Jesus to live in, a palace that actually, quite frankly, can get outdated and needs to be remodeled and some walls need to be moved, was worth the price of the book. So if you're on a journey of learning unlearning, and relearning. If you find yourself in the dark, well, this episode is for you. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome, Brian. Um, I really enjoyed your book. Um, I enjoyed it so much, your new book, that I went out and bought your other book, um, "The Hands of a Loving uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God," and I finished that too. I read both of them in a week. Fabulous. Um, I want to know why you wrote this book when everything's on fire. Well, in the beginning of the book, I talk about walking the Camino de Santiago. This is a 500-mile medieval pilgrimage route that the most traditional route begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, crosses the Pyrenees, and 500 miles later, later for my wife and I, that's about 40 days of walking, you arrive in Santiago. We did it in 2016, uh, and it healed our souls. We did a shorter route in 2017, and it was good for us. And then in 2019, we went back again because we've reached this stage of life where you know, we would just rather be on pilgrimage than about anything else. But mm. one of the things, Jackie, that the that the Camino does is, is it's something like a time machine in that because it is so old. I mean, it began about 1,200 years ago, was quite popular 1,000 years ago. 800 years ago, a half a million people a year were walking this. And then it pretty much disappeared in modernity in the 20th century and it had a, an amazing resurgence. It's, it's almost, you know, that's a commentary upon the time in which we live itself. It's just how, the, how pilgrimages and especially the Camino de Santiago has had this resurrection. But anyway, when you walk that, you can be very aware of an earlier epoch. And you realize there was a time when faith in God, as revealed in Christ, was more or less at the center of society. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't want to over-romanticize the medieval period. It had all of its challenges and problems, too. But at least the assumption was 
in Western civilization in, let's say, 500 years ago that we're going to believe in God as revealed in Christ. Well, that has all changed. And I was very aware that we live in a different time, a different epoch, a different age, and one that is not necessarily a friend to the sustaining of Christian faith. And so, of course, one of the things the Camino does is it reduces your life to this blessed simplicity of all you do is walk ever westward 12 to 15 miles a day and carry on your back everything that you need. And so this gives you a lot of time to think and settle into a more contemplative state. And I was thinking about how so many people are going through what is popularly called today deconstruction, struggling to hold on to faith. And I thought, well, if if I could walk with them Mm. for a day or two on this Camino, what might I say? And about 200 miles, two weeks into the long walk, we were in Castro Haris, a lovely hilltop village in northern Spain. And following our walk that day, I was sitting outside our albergue on a terrace, and I thought, well, what would I say? And I just, I pinned at the top of this little notebook, when everything's on fire. And I, and I outlined the 11 chapters, and really, remarkably, stuck very close to it. And so it was conceived in the fall of 2019, October 2019. I didn't really start writing until January of 2020. I'd already, I'd already given it the title when everything's on fire. And then everything was on fire. Everything did go on fire. (laughs) (laughs) So that's work. Imagine that. The spirit was at work. Um, You know, there is a lot of conversation right now about this concept of deconstructing and uh, now everybody's so tired of the word deconstructing, they're coming up with all other ways to talk about mm-hmm. it. Um, but basically, it's a, a spiritual journey where we're learning, unlearning, and relearning. Or as Richard Rohr would say, you know, it's this idea of ordering our faith, disordering it, and reordering it. And coming out of the conservative evangelical church, um, with my training and the women and men that come to me, um, a lot of them are deconstructing. I'll use that term. Yeah. Um, and it's a scary journey because if you have been trained or raised in the conservative evangelical church, you have been taught that things are certain and that we, our sect of Christianity, is right. Um, if you start shifting any of your theology, well, then you're you know, on that slippery slope to liberalism yeah. or worse yet, no faith at all, Right. And yet what I love about right. your book is that you actually um, help it help this process seem normal and not scary and actually ancient. And one of the things I, I loved was you were really good about de- definitions, giving us definitions and making us separate things out and think about them a little more clearly, but also some imagery. And one of them that I want you to share with our audiences, um, you talk about the fact that we build a theological palace. I love that imagery. And, and we invite King Jesus to live there and that we can remodel that theological palace, even maybe move walls and possibly burn some of it down, right? And Jesus is still standing. So share a little bit of that with our audience, because I loved, I'm holding on to that imagery and actually sharing it with others. So tell us. Yeah, I just think perhaps a, a better use of language than deconstruction. I have enough background in philosophy to understand that deconstruction is really a a, a theory of textual criticism given to us by Jacques Derrida. It can mm-hmm. be helpful, but also just be endless and serving no real point in the final assessment of things. And so I reach for different ways of describing reaching a point in life where a critical rethinking of certain aspects of your theology is required of you. You just you can't put it off. It has to be done. And I think one of the reasons I could write this book, because I had my own experience with this that really began in earnest in 2004 and and having to rethink things. And so I talk about how we all have a theological house, a a palace in the mind for Christ the King. This is how we think and speak about God revealed in Christ. 
And we pick it up along the way. Some of it we inherit from whatever, perhaps our parents, our background, our tradition, what sermons we hear, what books we read. It just accumulates over time, over decades, perhaps. And for me, I'll just speak from my own vantage point. I reached the point in my early 40s where I realized that I was embarrassed about my theological house. I didn't want to have company over to my <laughs> theological house. I was, still, I was still fascinated by Jesus, this person that captured my heart as a teenager. But the house, my theological house, was outdated, dilapidated. Parts of it were just no longer tenable as far as what I really felt like I needed to believe. I saw that there was a tremendous clash between the beauty of Christ and some of these doctrines that had risen up. And so what do you do? Well, you know, you go in for a remodel. But of course, if you've ever remodeled a house while living in it, you know that that is quite inconvenient, that it's going to take longer than you think, it's going to cost more than you think. But that was my experience. But here's the point, Jackie that I was able somehow, by the grace of God, I suppose, to make the all-important critical distinction between Jesus and the theological house. So since my faith was in Jesus, the Christ, then everything else is negotiable. And another thing to keep in mind, and this is so important, your theological house is not one thing. It's not a one-room bungalow. It is a palace. It's Mm -hmm. a sprawling mansion with dozens of rooms. And so some of the rooms, more or less, were untouched. I didn't really need to do much. Everything was fine. Maybe, you know, if you want to play with the metaphor, maybe we put a new table in there or something. I don't know. Uh, But other rooms, (laughs) yeah, other rooms came in for some more severe treatment. And I'll be a little bit forthcoming. I'll just say I had one whole wing of my theological house that's called eschatology. And because I'm from the Jesus movement, and which I look back upon mostly in a fond way, but with that came a rather, a rather aberrant, we'll put it that way, a rather aberrant understanding of the end times. And that whole wing of my house had to be, we can use the word deconstructed there. I mean, I'll say we brought in the sledgehammers and took it down to the foundation. But but see, the whole point of that metaphor, Jackie, is that you you can negotiate all kinds of different doctrines while still having a faith in Jesus. See, if, if your faith is in Christ, then everything else is negotiable, and you can go through this process and still have faith in Jesus. So... What, what, see, what happens in, in various kinds of very conservative evangelicalism, going into fundamentalism, is everything is bundled together so tightly. And out of fear, often leaders have told people, once you begin to pull on that thread, you, th- you rethink one thing, it all becomes a slippery slope. Well, let me tell you, the, the slippery slope slides every direction. So, I mean, if you reach the point where, look, I'll give an example. Someone says, I just can't believe that the, you know, they've been, let's say they were raised in the tradition where they were just taught that the universe, that the earth is 6,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And eventually they just are confronted with incontrovertible evidence that this is not the case. And they can't hold on to that any longer just through grim determination. Well, if they haven't made the distinction between Christ and their theological house, everything may be lost. Rather than say, you know what, I'm going to rethink how I understand Genesis informing creation. Rather than, well, it, it appears that dinosaurs weren't walking the earth 6,000 years ago, so I'm done with Jesus. <laughs> that, that's what I would call, you know, a fundamentalist reaction to fundamentalism. And so maybe let go of the fundamentalism, but try to hold on to Jesus. I love that, because that is what you do throughout the whole book. And I want my listeners to hear that. You... um point us back to the Christ over and over and over again. Everything else, one of my statements I have with a friend of mine now, Debbie, I always say to her, look, Jesus is the son of God. He's my Lord. Everything else is midrash. Everything else is up for discussion, debate. 
And so like we're, now, we're now down to it's just midrash. Well, I have Judaism in my background. My husband's Jewish. So I figure I can have that. It's part of my background. So I, I want you to speak a little bit to um, this idea because this is, uh, you know, when you mentioned the slippery slope and if you pull on one string and that is what I was taught, that is what a lot of my listeners have been taught. And so it is a very scary thing for us. Um, and when I started down this road of unlearning, and relearning or remodeling, as you put it, um, I got a little scared because I was wondering, will Jesus be left at the end of this, right? Or am I going to just let it all go? And that was really scary, especially since I'm a pastor, you know, that's kind of important. And you talk about in chapter five, this, you even title it losing Jesus. And then you give us some Mm -hmm. clarifications about Christ, the church and Christianity, which I thought was so helpful. Because you're right, we do clump it so tight together that I don't know that we've been taught to see them as three separate entities. So can you speak to that? Because I think it's a great tool for our listeners to have as they go through their own spiritual journey. Just what do you mean yeah. by these are three separate entities? Yeah, you're, you're leading us into what is one of the primary problems. And we are very uh, oftentimes irresponsible, sloppy in our language. And it has consequences. And we tend to use Christ, church, Christianity almost interchangeably, and we absolutely must not do that. When we speak of Christ, we are speaking of, well, we're in the Christmas season here, the eternal logos made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Christ, all right? In response to the word coming into the world, there are those that now come to believe in Jesus as the Christ, and you have the gathered community of the baptized doing life together, believing that truth is found in Christ. And so, okay, that's the church. All right, so it's not the same as Jesus. You have Jesus, and then you have his followers, this community of people that intentionally gather. And then out of that arises the Christian religion. And here's one of the real problems, Jackie, is that we have been trained to say that Christianity isn't a religion. Mm. I'm going I'm to tell you, we didn't get that from Jesus. We get that from Voltaire and Nietzsche. And what w- their withering criticism of religion we found so intimidating that our response has been, well, Christianity isn't a religion. Well, yes, it is. Christianity is the religion of beliefs and practices about Jesus Christ and about living a life informed by him that arose over time. So this is why we can, Christians do not claim that Christianity is the truth. I know, I know that they should not anyway. What we claim is that Jesus Christ is the truth. Mm. And then Christianity is an ongoing engagement with understanding how we speak of that and what that means. And so, yes, there's Christ, church, Christianity. They are not the same. Christ is God. The church is the gathered uh, assembly of people around Christ. And Christianity is the religion that develops in response to all of this. And Christianity has the capacity to grow and develop and correct and change over time. But if you believe that Christianity itself is the truth and somehow has the divine attribute of immutability and cannot and must not change, well, that's when you run into a problem. When you encounter aspects of Christianity that are clearly in conflict with the moral conscience that God has given to you, but you say it cannot change, then the whole thing may be thrown out. So it's a great safety valve to make that critical distinction. Um, And the problem arises a little bit in response to Voltaire and Nietzsche and also just in how sloppy sometimes we are about language. Yeah, I love that. It was very helpful for me. And I actually know that, but I needed to relearn it. You know, I needed somebody to say it to me again and go, oh, that's right. Because what it tells me is the church, how we gather can constantly shift. It will not be static and probably shouldn't. And it does. And it does, and it has, and Christianity, the beliefs and the practices, they shift. They constantly have shifted, and it's okay if they do, right? It's not a scary Mm -hmm. thing. It has, it will, (laughs) and it doesn't change God. They're separate. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, very helpful. I hope that somebody is listening going, ah, 
I needed to hear that. You talk about yeah. losing Jesus. And I shared how I was a little afraid I would lose Jesus as I started this process, mm-hmm. mostly because that's what people told me, you know? Um, I loved how you talked about Mary losing Jesus three times. I had never considered the second time that you talk about. I've considered the temple and then, of course, on the cross, but I never considered the 40 days in the wilderness and her, him not returning. Um, share a little bit about that because I think it's, again, you go to scripture and you help us see, look, this isn't um, rocket science. This is actually, we see people doing this in the scriptures. She had to learn about Jesus, unlearn, and relearn. So tell us a little bit about those, her story. Uh, that, that really is a fascinating aspect of Mary, the mother of Jesus, that there are these moments where she loses him. He always reappears. You know, that doesn't erase the anxiety of that time when he is lost, right. but that's part of the growth process. But upon reappearing, he must be reevaluated. And you know, there's the obvious one that everyone could probably, if they're very familiar with Scripture, could get, you know, when Jesus is 12 and that whole business, and Jesus doesn't return with the caravan back to Nazareth, they discover it, you know the story. Yes. And they run back and, okay, but the one that, and, and then, of course, lost in death and returns in resurrection, that requires the ultimate rethink of Jesus. But there's the one in between that sometimes just gets glossed over. And so Jesus grows up in Nazareth. He is the son of the carpenter. He himself is called a carpenter. At some point, apparently, Joseph has died, and and Jesus is more or less, you know, the head of the household. He has younger brothers. But around around age 30, Jesus goes to hear his cousin, John the Baptist, preaching, and Jesus is baptized by John. We know that. That's well known. And then Jesus disappears. He goes into the wilderness, and that this is well known, for 40 days and 40 nights. He's about to launch his ministry, and I think this is preparatory. And he's, he's considering, you know, what form is this ministry going to take on? What am I really to do and proclaim and all of that? At the end of that 40 days of preparation, prayer, and fasting in the wilderness, he does not return to Nazareth. A close reading of the text will show that he does not go to Nazareth. He goes and sets up in Capernaum. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, my wife and I have walked from Nazareth to Capernaum. It's about 40 miles. And so, so I, I, know, I know that route. I know what it feels like to walk from Nazareth to Capernaum. Anyway, Jesus uh, relocates. He, he's no longer um, a carpenter. He's in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee and beginning to preach. Mary and her other sons hear about this. And they're, they're concerned. And in fact, there's language used that they thought that he was perhaps taking leave of his senses. And they went to have a, I guess, some sort of family intervention. And they show up in Capernaum. Jesus is teaching in a house. There's a great crowd in there. They can't get in. They send word. Word comes to Jesus. Your mother and your brothers are out and would like a word with you. And what does Jesus say? He says, who is my mother and my brothers? Those who hear the word of God and do it. Come on now. That's a hard thing. Yeah. If I was his mama, I would want to slap him down right there. How dare you? There you go. You get the point. (laughs) But what does that mean? She lost Jesus. Now she's found him, but she has to rethink him. I mean, we also would have been offended way back when he was 12, the Logos in adolescence, who's gone for three days, and his own response is, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house about my father's business? I mean, that is no way for a 12-year-old who's just disappeared for three days to talk to his mom. (laughs) But this is no fear child. This This is the Logos. And so... We think we have Jesus all figured out, and we think, oh, I can play with this a little more. We think we know how Jesus should behave and what Jesus should do and say. And and then we have these moments when we lose control of that, and it's not happening anymore. And then we, maybe to our relief, find Jesus. Oh, you know, he's in the temple. Oh, he's in Capernaum. But he's different. Yeah. Now, yeah. the point I would say is he really isn't different. Jesus is very God of very God. He is the one that actually truly is immutable. 
but we are growing in our knowledge of him. And it looks like he's changed because we've already been operating all of our life with all kinds of assumptions regarding Jesus. So really what needs to get lost is our assumption that we have made about Jesus that we're quite comfortable with and we console ourselves with. Uh, but if we're going to really continue to grow, those assumptions must be lost. And that is very often going to feel just like losing Jesus. Yeah. Scary, but he always comes right. back is what you're saying. And that's yeah. encouraging. We need to remember that because some people who are listening, they feel like he's, they've lost him right now. And so the scripture tells us he comes back every time. I love a quote that you said in your book. You said, Christianity seeks to understand Christ but Christianity does not create or control Christ. And the radical freedom of Christ is such that he can show up in unexpected places and in surprising ways, even among those who are attempting to control him for their own purposes. And this is what you're saying. We need to give Jesus the freedom to uh, show back up and us have to reevaluate the theological palace, right? We're going back to, wait, I had you looking like this. You're challenging me to reconsider. I'm going to have to do a little remodeling. Yeah, sometimes our theater, I've never said this before, Jackie. This is a, a new riff on the metaphor. If we try to turn our theological palace into a prison, and Jesus has to say, confined in, our, in the prison, Jesus has to be this way. Well, that's when there's going to be a jailbreak. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, when there's going to be Jesus another resurrection. Jesus is not going to be prisoner of anything. Yeah. And what happens is, and, and I'm, look, I, I am not an anti-traditional, anti-institution guy. I, I mean, I understand their inevitability and, and their function and their purpose, but they always come with certain problems. And institutions become, they want to control Christ. And, and they want to say... Okay, here, here's our doctrinaire statements, and Christ must stay within that. Now, I'm playing with a metaphor here. I, I believe there actually is something to the creeds, and Jesus can't be everything because then he becomes nothing. But within the—I mean, the historical creeds are very broad. Yes. We, they mostly have to do with how we understand Christ as God, and we arrive at the point that he's fully God, not— half man, half God, or part God, or a little bit less God. He's fully God. But once we get our Christology right in an orthodox way, there's a lot of other things to reconsider, whether we're talking about eschatology or heaven and hell or who Jesus can and can't save and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, once we, If we try to make our theological house a prison for Christ, that's when there's going to be a problem. I just want to take a few minutes and pause and tell you about a couple things that may be interesting to you. Some of you have reached out and said, hey, Jackie, I would really like to have more intentional time in a very safe space to discuss some of these topics that you've been covering on your podcast. And so what I've decided to do is offer a Jackie Always Unplugged in-person experience. Yes, you'll have spiritual conversations with your people and me a been around the block a few times, pastor, preacher, and public theologian. So if you want to know more about that, just email me at Jackie at themarcellaproject.com. Also, if you want to dig more into this book, When Everything's on Fire, I want you to consider uh, joining our book discussion. You can either do it in person in Austin or you can get online and we're hosting it on a Zoom. The details and registration to that you can find on my website, The Marcella Project. Now, back to when everything's on fire. In your book, you talk about a dark night of unknowing. And I know for, I've been there where it's a scary dark night, um, maybe for a long time. And, and I know that other people are there um, that are listening. So I want to read something you wrote on page 75. You said, in Genesis, the new day doesn't begin at sunrise or midnight, but at sunset. Reflecting this, the Jewish Sabbath does not begin at sunrise on Saturday, but on sundown on Friday. Each new day begins with new darkness. Newness is not heralded by the rising sun, but by the enfolding darkness. In our pilgrimage through life, dark nights come before new dawns. And then you go on to say, 
A journey into new light is first a journey into the dark night of unknowing. Wow. I love that because again, I think for those of us who've been taught not um, that our that our spiritual journey doesn't shift, that it stays exactly the same. This this dark night of unknowing is scary, um, and I love that you are normalizing it and saying it's part of the process. Um, you share how Paul exemplified that truth. Um, tell it. Tell us what you mean by. I think his- Paul is the best example. I um, I use a couple of examples in that chapter. Um, I start with Abraham, mm-hmm. who who is the first one to journey westward. It's a land into the setting sun. I play with that. But for Abraham, it's mostly just a new knowing. And that's how we often begin with Christ. And then we, earlier in life, we're just, we're just gaining more and more knowledge about Christ. And then we can fall into the presumption that spiritual growth is always the result of more addition. We just add this, add this. And if you think about American evangelicalism, it's really set up like that, that, that we just keep ever adding more, you know, God facts or whatever. Knowledge. And, and that's and spiritual growth. And, and as we move, yeah, I, you can't, I can't say that this is always the way there isn't a formula, but very often it's as people begin to enter the second half of life that that doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And that spiritual growth is going to really come about by unknowing some things and being thrown into a place where perhaps for a while, you know, next to nothing. Um, I, I th- I've talked to so many people who are going through a significant spiritual transition that ultimately leads to a point of life. But in the midst of it, they'll be saying, I don't know anything anymore. Right. Well, I think that's not altogether bad. And I think the great picture is Saul of Tarsus, who is, you know, he's kind of a Bible answer man. He's arrogant. <laughs> he has all of the answers. I mean, you can just see him taking those calls. Callers, do you have a Bible question? <laughs> and he listens for 30 seconds and spits out his answer with absolute certitude. Absolutely. And if we look at if we look at Saul, I mean, you, you can see what he's doing. I mean, he, there's no doubt that he has a zeal for God, but his zeal is violent. And he has his Bible verses, right? I mean, he knows that text in Deuteronomy that says anyone hang, hung upon a tree is cursed by God. And so there's this new Jewish sect that claims that Jesus of Nazareth uh, is the Messiah, that this one that was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And, you know, Saul of Tarsus says, that's impossible. I have my Bible verse. I right. can prove it. It's right here in Deuteronomy chapter 21. <laughs> there you go. And and so, you know, he's got his Bible verse and he's certain and he persecutes in Jerusalem. And then he begins to reach further afield and he gets arrest warrants and he's marching with a mean stride all the way up to Damascus. And he's almost there when something that had probably subconsciously been brewing in him for a while suddenly explodes. And he, it's described as this moment of a flash of light and and the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I think in this moment, Saul realizes that this light comes from, this is the same light that Ezekiel saw by the river Kibar. This is the light of the glory of God. So he knows, so he says, he says, who are you, sir? Well, it's Lord. Who are you, Lord, is what it is. Kyrios, which is the way a Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jew would speak of the unmentionable Hashem. And so he's saying, who are you, holy God? Mm. And the reply is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he goes blind. So he was literally, literally blinded by the light. And, and, and just picture, he was marching with such certitude. I mean, there's just there's this, there's a stride that he has, and he, he neither to the left to the right. You know, he's on his way to to Damascus to find anybody that believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and then bang, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And now look at him. He's shuffling along, his hands outstretched. He needs somebody to take I'll him know, by the yeah. hand. Yeah. And he he has entered for him literally a dark night for three days and three nights. He sees nothing. And he's having, he knows one thing, Jesus is Lord. 
who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. He knows Jesus. is. That's the one thing he knows. Everything else has at least temporarily been obliterated. And we're told that he didn't eat or drink. I don't think he was fasting. I think he was too stunned even to eat or drink. And finally, uh, Ananias, sent by Jesus, comes to him, and he says, Brother Saul. Now, you understand that Saul of Tarsus was a lethal threat to people like Ananias. But Ananias comes to him and says, Brother Saul. calls him brother. Mm. And that, that's when the scales fell from his eyes. And he understood that you can't love God by being violent toward other people, that God really is love. I mean, later he'll pin his great ode to love that we know as 1 Corinthians 13, but the scales fell from his eyes when Ananias called him brother. And so now he can be, he's come through the dark night of unknowing, and now he can actually begin to know anew and grow. So Saul would be the most extreme example of something like that. But I think many of us will have um, our own dark nights of unknowing. See, unknowing can mean two things. It can mean, I don't know, or I'm using it more like I have to unknow what I thought I knew. And probably most people understand that it's not the learning that's hard. That's easy. What's hard is the unlearning. So, So, for example... Saul is convinced that Messiah can't be hung on a tree. And he has to learn, no, Messiah, in fact, must be hung upon a tree. And so he's got some profound unlearning to do. And so, but but see, that's the point. This is set forth in Scripture as normative. And so, look, you can go through your own dark night of the soul and arrive on the other side of it uh, with, with a more enlightened faith in Christ. But you can't skip the dark night. Yeah, that's right. It's all part of the process. And that's what Mm -hmm. I hope our listeners will hear. You're normal. This is normal. Well, maybe they're not normal. I don't know. The experience is normal. (laughs) The experience is normal. Thank you. (laughs) Just know that this is, and, and pilgrimages have been, people have been doing this since Christ came, you know? I mean, we, we see this in scripture with his own mother who knew him best, right? Having to unknow some things. And Paul, it's part of the spiritual journey. It's normative. Sure. Um, you talk about Jesus being the only foundation. Um, you, you speak about the revelation of Christ. And I really, really like this. I, I'll tell you, I went back to counseling two years ago, and um, I think it was two years. You know, in the pandemic, I can't tell what's that. Time is elastic. But anyway, and one of the things I told her was I was really struggling with how to read the Bible, because I was trained in the conservative evangelical world. I was trained in seminaries that, quite frankly, were patriarchal. And mm-hmm. um, and so I was trained to read the Bible in certain ways with certain lenses. And I couldn't read the Bible because I was just like, I was so frustrated every time. And so she asked me a little bit about my spiritual journey. And I shared with her how I had had an encounter with Christ in my 20s, and I didn't have a Bible. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I didn't grow up around any Christians or anything. We didn't go to church, nothing. No Bibles mm-hmm. in the house. And I had an encounter with the living Christ. And um, and I, throughout those first years, before I really got trained, went to seminary, I, I often would hear the voice of God instructing me on things and helping me navigate life. So this revelation, right? Um, so my counselor said, well, why don't you go back to that? Yeah. Let's, let's go back to yeah. the revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, it sounds ridiculously simple, but it's been a real helpful thing. And you talk about this idea that Christ is the only foundation. You speak to the revelation of Christ. It's not empirical. It's not something you think. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I- the most important part of the book, if I were to give my opinion on my own book, I think <laughs> and, and you can understand that the foundation must be Christ and nothing else. And it, by Christ, I mean a revelation of Christ. And I don't, I don't know if I can. I mean, <laughs> somebody may have to actually read the book to really get my point, because you have to, you have to understand that the phenomenon of Loss of faith, deconstruction is not happening in a vacuum. In one sense, Jack, you've said that that these 
processes of rethinking uh, that which has been assumed concerning our theology has been throughout history. True enough, but there is something unique about living in late modernity. And even and right now. the world began to make a shift yep. with the Enlightenment, with Descartes, with Cogito Ergo Sum, I think, therefore I am, and the foundation being empirical rather than revelatory, and this creates a, a situation where faith is in jeopardy. What we have been taught, and when I say we've been taught, I don't know that anybody ever stood up in a classroom or in your family and taught you this. It's just, it's just, it's just in the air we breathe. It's just all around us. We're saturated with the idea that only that which can be empirically verified can be called true. And we have been coerced into distrusting that which would be revealed to our heart and not provable in the terms of empiricism. Mm -hmm. Well, then what you have done is come up with a foundation where ultimately all you're going to be able to do is prove that the claims of Christ are untrue. Because if you accept the terms, if you say it must be empirically verified, by which we mean you've got to be able to prove it through the five physical senses in some amplified form, perhaps, telescopes, microscopes, and other scientific instruments, you, you can't prove the veracity of Christ through a laboratory. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. But we have accepted those terms, and that's why you'll have all these books about people trying to find Noah's Ark up on Mount Ararat. Or we'll get scuba divers, go down into the Red Sea and try to find those Egyptian chariots that surely must be rusting down there somewhere. Because we've <laughs> accepted the terms that we're going to prove our Christian faith by proving certain facts that are, hip, that are empirically verifiable. That is never what is set forth in Scripture. Scripture itself points us to faith in the revelation of Christ. So. Who is the first to make the confession? It's Peter. Mm -hmm. Who do people say that I am? There's a lot of opinions. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon. You didn't figure that out on your own. Uh, my Father has revealed this to you, and it's so profound, it's going to change you. I'm going to change your name. I'm going to call you Petros. I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you Rocky. And upon this Petra, upon this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of death, of Hades, of hell will not prevail against that. Well, but when we switch during the Enlightenment, during Mo and what happens in late modernity, which is basically the 20th century, is that which had been fomenting among the intellectual elite now begins to filter down into the masses. And we begin to accept that all that can be known must be known empirically. And then you have the rise of kind of what I would call uh, faux Christian pop apologetics, where it, where it accepts those terms and then sets out to try to prove things, you know, prove the resurrection. Or and no, that's all a um, misguided venture that's more likely going to end up in atheism than in faith. Rather, what we need to do is say, you know what, I have, and this is BZ speaking here. I don't know of any peer-reviewed, major scientific theory that is any threat to my faith. I'm no opponent to science at all, other than to say that once empirical empiricism or logical positivism or whatever you want to call this, materialism, has said everything it can say about the phenomenon of being, it has not said all that can be said, because there is the reality of the heart or spirit. There is the reality of that which is revealed to your heart that you cannot prove, and yet you know that it is. So this is, so this is Blaise Pascal as the counterpoint to Rene Descartes, who, by the way, was, was a believer. He wasn't trying to make a case for atheism, but he inadvertently ended up doing so. At the same time that Rene Descartes is doing his work in Paris, you also have Blaise Pascal, who is you know, one of the great rational minds of history. I mean, he's one of the great mathematical geniuses of all time. So he's not opposed to reason. But he's had his own encounter with Christ. And in his Pensee, he gives us the very famous axiom, the heart has its reason, of which reason knows nothing. Mm. I think most people, unless they've made a formal commitment to some form of atheism, know that is true. They know it true experientially. 
that there are things that are revealed to their heart. They can't prove to someone else. They can't come up with a mathematical syllogism to convince the skeptic. And yet the heart has its reason of which reason knows nothing. This is the, the phenomenon of love. It's also the phenomenon of the experience of God. And so one of the things I'm doing in the book is inviting people to come down out of their head. We've since Descartes been kicked upstairs inside our head all by ourselves, all alone, trying to be the sole arbiter of truth according to the terms set forth to us by empiricism. And I'm inviting people to come down into the living room, into the heart room, in, into the room of the heart where possibly there is a nice fire in the heart and sit there and allow the presence of Christ to be real to you once again. That's the foundation for faith, and that's where it must remain as the foundation. Yep, I loved it. And your book absolutely does that. It absolutely does that. And the other night, I was with a group of people, and I was with a guy who has walked away from the faith and now claims to be an atheist. And in just just in a second in passing, we didn't really get too much um, to talk about his faith too much. But in passing, I just did say, so are you saying you've never had an encounter with the living God? And he got a really funny look on his face, and I thought, oh, you have. You have. Yeah. You have reasoned yourself out of faith. But if right. I take away all of the arguments, have you encountered the living God? And I know he has. I could tell by his look, and I thought, yes, now sit with that. That's what I want you to wrestle well, down, most, you know? Most former Christian who have become atheists, and I, I don't want to speak at all. I'm going to speak nothing but with respect and love and tenderness but also as one who has had plenty of encounters with, with these people. Most of them are protest atheists. Yes. They're not intellectual atheists. They are saying, this God should not exist. And I say, well, just, it's an interesting question. It's always a little bit funny. I'll say, well, describe to me the God that you don't believe exists. <laughs> and surprisingly, they can do so. And almost always, I'm able to say, you know what? I don't believe in that God either, but I do believe in God. Mm. And, and what's happened is, and this is where maybe, you know, the companion book would be Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, where uh, if God is presented as angry, violent, retributive, and then, you know, you can do that if you want. You can use the Bible in such a way as to, quote, prove that. But if you present a God that is angry, violent, retributive, mercurial, one that, you know, picks and chooses, will save this one and the rest will torture forever. People just reach the point where their conscience demands them not to believe in that God. They're essentially saying uh, an, 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 an omnipotent entity, that immoral, should not be allowed to exist. Should not be God. Well, the good news is that God <laughs> doesn't exist. And so what, the hap what we need to do is is give people a God that's revealed in Christ, not a God that is captive to ugly, pernicious doctrine. Very well said. And I would highly recommend um, the hands of sinners in the hands of an angry or a loving God. You're playing off yeah, Jonathan. Got to get it right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, you're playing off Jonathan Edwards. But um, yeah, I, I read it afterwards and I thought, oh, these two do go hand in hand. And I've actually given, sent them to several people and say, okay, I need you to read this one first and then this one second, and then we're going to have a conversation about it is kind of where I'm at. But Which have read first? I wanted them to read this one when everything is on fire. Um, because evangelicals, and this leads me right into my next question, because evangelicals love the Bible. And you mm -hmm. have to, we, we have to revisit some of our theological rooms about the Bible. And so you, until you have that conversation with the evangelicals, then you can have, then they can loosen up and ask some other questions. But the Bible is, right. you know, like you, <laughs> I say in your, to, you, you wrote some pretty provocative things about the Bible in this new book. And one right. of your subtitles is the Bible is not the foundation of the Christian faith, which will just rock some people's world. Just that statement. Um, you also yeah. say, and I'm going to quote you here. You say, I love the Bible. My theology is firmly rooted in the sacred soil of scripture. I love that term sacred soil of scripture. I've read the Bible nearly every day for over four decades. 
The soil of scripture is the primary source for the spiritual nutrients that permeate every area of my life. But my Christian faith is bigger than the Bible. I can hear some of my listeners right now. And dare I say it, it even gets worse out there. He says, it's better than the Bible. So, and you go on to say that Jesus Christ is the only perfect theology and the only enduring foundation. Again, for some of us, we're going, what? So talk to us a little bit about your journey of reading the Bible. And what would you say to us, this particular sect of Christianity? What do we need to learn and relearn about the Bible? Okay, there's a lot here. I know. There's a lot here, Jack. Let me let me try. Let me start with something that's not in the book, but I think it's a good place to start with who I'm gathering or probably our listeners. Uh, Five hundred years ago, in the Christian West, there was a call it what you will, call it a Reformation. It was many things. It was also a divorce. Mm. Let's use that language. Mm-hmm. Uh, something needed to happen. There needed to be reformed. There's no doubt about it. The Renaissance uh, Church was stunningly corrupt, and something needed to happen, and something did. But it more or less results in a divorce. And so you had a divorce, I'm going to use this language, between Catholic mom and Protestant dad. And in divorce, when you have children, then there's custody disputes. Some ended up with Catholic mom. Some ended up with Protestant dad. Well, I'm talking to people who mostly ended up with Protestant dad. Mm -hmm. Now, in the divorce settlement, uh, Catholic mom got most everything. Got the Really the church, really the sacraments, really the tradition, and Catholic, or Protestant dad got nothing but the Bible. And so the Bible had to become everything, even though if all you have is the Bible, you can't even account for its own existence, but that, they tried to ignore that. And so Protestant dad had to make the Bible everything, and to his credit, to his credit, did marvelous work with it. You know, I'm thinking about just some of the, the, the scholarship, the commentaries, the emphasis on Scripture uh, in the Protestant world has been, it, it's been the best. It's been excellent. But in the end, that project puts too much pressure on the Bible. It places on it more than it can. When I say that we have no other foundation but Jesus, not even the Bible, I am saying something the Bible agrees with. <laughs> That's where I got, I mean, where do you think the phrase, there is no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, not the scriptures. The scriptures, what they do perfectly is point us to Jesus. The Bible doesn't call us to put faith in the Bible. The Bible calls us to put faith in God as revealed in Christ. So for here's a really good example. If you believe that the Bible must be perfect, in its theology, not just perfectly pointing us to the one who alone is perfect theology, who is the Word made flesh, Christ, but the Bible itself must be perfect theology. Well, then you run into all kinds of indefensible problems that every, you know, high school atheist knows. So, for example, for example, uh, the Bible, we have the scandal. If, if, if you're trying to make the Bible perfect, you have the scandal that the Bible in neither testament condemns the institution of slavery as immoral. In both testaments, not just the Old Testament, New and Old and New Testament, the Bible take it as an inevitable institution that it's just going to exist. And then you have, you know, they're like Exodus. I think I can quote it. I think it's twenty-one, twenty-two. It's pretty. It's I know it's Exodus twenty-one. I think it's verse twenty-two. Uh, I'll quote it. This is right out of Scripture. Uh, when a slave owner strikes a slave, and the slave dies. There shall be punishment. But if the slave lives a day or two, there shall be no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right out of the Bible, folks. Yeah. And so what are you going to do with that? Uh, you know, so if a slave owner beats a slave and they fall into unconsciousness and die two days later, there's no punishment because what is the reason? Because, well, after all, the slave is the owner's property. Well, I mean, there isn't any modern person that can defend that kind of ethic, and yet you're forced to try to do it if you're going to hold that the Bible is perfect. But here's another distinction to be made. The Bible is not Christianity. The Bible is the soil in which the living faith of Christianity is rooted. We can't can't be apart from Scripture. 
Well, look, anybody that's inclined to argue with me, I say the odds are probably I spend far more of my life immersed in Scripture than they do. I mean, I'm not just, you know, using the ig- the empty signifier of calling myself a Bible believer. I'm actually working with the text and trying to live it out and all of that. Uh, but once we make a distinction between the text, the canonical text that is the Bible as the soil, and the living, growing faith that is Christianity, well, then we realize that Christianity is capable of producing entire boughs and limbs and branches of abolition. And so what the Bible does perfectly is lead us to Jesus, and that is the one in whom we have to place all of our ultimate faith. So I love the Bible. I'm not trying to disparage the Bible. I don't have a low view of Scripture, but I do have a very high view of Christ, which is, in fact, what the Scriptures want us to do. Beautifully said. So I, I just I think I think a lot of people are deconstructing from what I would call biblicism, and think they're deconstructing from faith in Christ. Yeah. So no, tell tell the, hold, tell tell the audience what biblicism is. Biblicism is an approach to reading Scripture where it is a flat text, okay. where every single verse must carry equal authority, and this, and by the way, is an impossible task. Uh, you you will pretend that this is possible, is not possible. So that when an atheist says to me, well, the Bible's full of contradictions, I go, oh, please tell me about it. I mean, for everyone, you can tell me, well, I can come up with 10. I know the book a lot better. Of course it is. But it does have, over, it does have an overarching internal, in, it, it's, it's coherent in its witness to the one who is the word made flesh. So I believe in the inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect word of God, and his name is Jesus Christ, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus himself, in essence, says this. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, but they are that which bear witness to me, but you will not come to me. See, one of the things that the Bible by by the biblicist position on the Bible is if you can just find a verse, right? Look, you can prove anything you want by the Bible. You tell you tell me what politics you want to believe. You can be you want to be a communist, you want to be a socialist, you want to be a capitalist. What do you want to be? Tell me what you want to be. Give me five minutes, and I'll give you your verses to prove you're right. And so this is see it, this is where actually we are dominating the Bible, and you can make the Bible stand on its hind legs and dance a jig for you. And then you can just all the time say, I've got a verse, I've got a verse, I've got a verse. That's biblicism. That is, that's where actually you are staying in charge and avoiding the risen living word who is Christ. Mm. And so, um, so if, if people will think, well, just, you know, believing the Bible is a safeguard. Look, what can't you believe in while claiming to believe the Bible? What egregious moral, uh, uh, yeah, well, what, what egregious assault to received morality can you not engage in by citing chapter and verse? Yeah. I mean, I literally just read numbers, literally just read numbers, numbers 31, I think it is. And it's about yeah. how the Israelites are at war, taking over the land of Canaan and they are instructed to wipe out this whole village, men, women, children, right. And then they're to keep the virgin daughters, the virgin girls, 32,000 of them. Don't kill them. They're going to be taken out of their land. All their people are dead, right? Mom, dad, brother says they're going to keep the virgin girls, 32,000 of them, and then bring them to the Israeli men, and they're going to split, divvy them out. And these girls are going to be raped by these men. They're going to become their Concubine slaves, sex slaves. So why don't we I can just, prove that? <laughs> yeah, of course you can. And, and I can show you. I can show you a text in First Samuel chapter six, or the second Second Samuel chapter six, where Samuel, in the name of Yahweh, tells Saul because of something the Amalekites did three hundred years earlier. I want you to go to Amalek and I, the Amalekites, and I want you to kill men, women, children, and infants. Mm-hmm. And so then you have to ask yourself, would you kill babies if God told you to? 
And because I can show you the text where God tells people to kill babies. And by the way, if, the, if I ask you the question, would you kill babies if God told you to? The answer is no, no. I will not kill babies. That's the correct answer. But then it creates a problem for the biblicist. And you have to, you, your options are limited. You can say, you can question the immutability of God. And you can say, well, God used to do stuff like that. Now God doesn't. But, you know, that's a pretty radical solution because now you are saying that God is subject to change and mutation and the very ground beneath our feet is moving. Or you can say, well, ordinarily killing babies is immoral, but when God tells you to do it, it transcends the ethical. Well, I think that's a very dangerous move uh, because then all you need is some religious lunatic to say, God told me and there, you know, and all kinds of genocides can be justified. So the only other option is we must rethink how we understand inspired scripture. And so this is what I say about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the inspired telling of Israel's story in coming to know the living God, but along the way, assumptions are made. And so the Old Testament gives us a, a journal. Oh, it documents Israel's journey of coming to know God that ultimately then crosses over into the New Testament and finds its full revelation in Christ. So there's this presumption, and it's nothing but a presumption, because it's just not true that the Old Testament speaks in a univocal manner. So you ask the Old Testament, does God require ritual blood sacrifice? Well, you'll get the priest, you'll get the Torah to say, certainly, of course, yes, and, and it'll just say that. God requires these ritual blood sacrifices in order to forgive sin. But then later, the psalmists and prophets begin to question them. And in Psalm 40, you said, uh, sacrifice for sin and burnt offerings you have not, not required. required. You have opened my ears. And then Hosea speaks in the name of Yahweh and says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, something that Jesus quotes twice. And so uh, I, you make the Bible impossible when you pretend that it's perfect where it's not. What I've discovered, because I'm a Christian, is that Christ is perfect, and the Bible perfectly points me to Christ, so that is the foundation of my faith. And so let me um, move us from there, to because I think this leads us right into one of the things you do on page 118, I think it is. Um, you talk about, hey, if you are struggling with your faith and you're doing some remodeling of your, you know, palace that you have built and um, you want to encounter the living Christ, you recommend, um, well, the funny thing is you recommend people to go to the Bible <laughs> and you say, uh, go to the gospels. Tell, tell us, tell, tell our listeners if that's where they're at right now, because we're going to so, kind of close it up. But if yeah, I, I've given counsel to people um, numerous times, often with good benefit. Often the impetus for deconstruction that threatens uh, all of Christian faith is actually rooted in how we read the Bible. But until we find a better way, sometimes it's better to pull back and just concentrate for a season. I'm not I'm not trying to make some sort of thing where I'm where I'm throwing other texts out of the canon. I'm actually very orthodox and traditional. But what I'm saying is for a season in your reading, just confine your reading of the scriptures to the gospels or maybe even just to the gospel of John. Just for try it for 6 months. Just for 6 months that you're just going to read the gospel of John and you're going to read it without agenda. You're not trying to answer all of your questions. You're just wanting to encounter Jesus anew and let Jesus speak for himself, see him as he is, listen to what he says, and maybe don't read a lot. Read it very slowly. Read a chapter a day, and after you've read that chapter, just sit in silence for maybe 10 minutes and see if the living word might speak to you further. I think that that is one of the healthiest things people can do when they're suddenly being bombarded by 101 different doubts and thoughts and anxieties about Christian faith. Reduce it to the gospel, maybe the gospel of John, 
and read a chapter a day and then sit in some silence with Jesus after that reading and see what the living word who is Christ might speak to you. Love it. That's where we're going to close this up right with that. I love it, love it, love it. That's what I'm doing right now. I've actually been in the Gospels for several years because I couldn't go outside because I'd get flustered, right? Because I'm trying Mm -hmm. to relearn how to read the Bible. And so I've been doing just that. Luke's my favorite. I like to hang in Luke, but that's because, you know, Jesus does a lot of beautiful things with women in Luke. Right. (laughs) So I'm like, and I needed that recovered for me. I needed to have Jesus recover for me what patriarchy had done, you know? And so for me, I kept swimming around in Luke. But now I'm going to. The book I mentioned, we didn't talk about this. Mary Magdalene is certainly one of my heroes. And, uh, you know, the last place Perry and I traveled before the pandemic, we've been going to the Holy Land for. 25 years, we've led over 20 tours, and we love it, know it quite well. And we'd gone there a week prior to our, our, our group coming, and we stayed right there near the site of Magdala, which yep. is where Mary Magdalene is from. I mean, she's Mary of Magdala. And there's a brand, I say brand new, but I mean relatively new, archaeological uh, site there. And they're uncovering more and more, and so you really get to see uh, – the the world of Mary Magdalene. I think she's she's one of the true true heroes of the gospel. She's the most faithful of all of the disciples. Absolutely, she's, absolutely. She's the one that's always there when everyone else has fled. Mary Magdalene is there, and so anyway, we're we're, we're at the end of this. But uh, <laughs> I actually but, got to preach on her there at, at Mary Magdalene. Magdalene. Yeah. yeah, it was fabulous. Yeah, so yeah I've done that. Isn't, isn't that a isn't that a oh. wonderful sight? Oh, beautiful. It's, it's, yeah, and. And, you know, to think that it's highly possible that Jesus was there with her at some point, you know, that he traveled through there and, and to be a woman and then to teach on her, this woman from that, you know, town and to be able to stand there and, and preach where, you know, she most likely would have stood. It was very, very powerful. Yeah, I love that place. It's become one of my very favorite places in Galilee. Yeah, it's awesome. I highly recommend anybody. You know, my husband and I had a trip to Israel in October, and unfortunately, they weren't letting individuals in at that point. So we had to reschedule for June. And so hopefully, that's something we'll get to do in June. But it it doesn't look like they're opening up very quick. So we'll see how it goes. But I want to thank you for this book and for the other books. I'm now diving back into some of your other books. It has really, this book, I really want to encourage you who are listening to go out and buy this when everything's on fire. And then you can maybe get the second one, which really isn't your second book, but it's called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. I highly recommend it. I think I'm going to do a book study on it just so y'all know out there. Um, And so I just want to thank you. Um, Where can they find your book and your other work, actually? Oh, you can find it most everywhere, but I, I'm easy to find. I mean, it's Brian Zahn, Z-A-H-N-D. I'm the only one. I don't think there's anyone else out there. You Google me, you'll find that I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and I have a blog site, brianzahn.com, a little bit on Facebook. Um, you'll find, you know, if you go to wolc.com, like Word of Life Church, wolc.com, there's, I don't know, maybe thousands <laughs> of archived sermons if you're interested in that. And so I'm not hard to find. Excellent. Thank you. And you're right. You do have a weird name. All right. Thank you. And (laughs) listeners, if you want to carry on this conversation further, you can meet me um, on the Facebook page, Jackie Always Unplugged. We have a group page there. And I I know you've heard some things today that uh, you've probably never heard before, or you might want to further process. So feel free to jump on over there and we will be discussing. Thanks, Brian. Thank hey, you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.